Check, check, check. Okay. <clears throat> all right, here we go. This is Canvas, a show all about iPad productivity. My name is Fraser Spears, and I'm joined for the last time by Federico Vitici. Hello, Fraser. How are you? Hey, I'm well. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm a little sad, of course, that the, yeah. the this is the, the last time we'll do an episode of Canvas. But as we mentioned uh, two weeks ago, um, I think we're pretty much covered all that we can cover at this point in time uh, about the iPad and productivity and iOS uh, because there's no... Uh, realistically, we're not looking at major software cha uh, changes for at least six months. And of course, new hardware just came out. So I think we'll, yeah. we're uh, wrapping up Canvas on a, on, uh, on a nice note because we, we, we did mm -hmm. all that we wanted to do, I think. Uh, we had... Uh, you know, looking back at the history of the of, of the episodes, we had a bunch of wild ones. Like when you talked about that uh, <laughs> Acer <laughs> tablet. Uh, oh, the the Chromebook one. Yes, the, the Chromebook. That was a that was a, that was a, yeah. We had some guests over the past couple of years, which was cool. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, um, I'm sad that it's ending. But also, I think personally, that we did a good job. And it's not like sometimes when I do podcasts, I always feel like there's a there's a few things that I wanted to say, but I didn't. But looking back at the history of Canvas, I think uh, these 77 episodes, I'm pretty proud of what, what we accomplished. So, um, yeah, so thank you. And thank you to our listeners, of course. Yeah, and thank you for, for the kind words on Twitter as well. You know, people were very kind on, yeah. uh, in, in the comments that they left and, and things that they said to us about the show and how much, in many cases, how much they were going to miss the show as well. So uh, that's always nice to, to note. And I think I also mentioned on Twitter that probably by the time we publish and people hear this episode, we will have ticked over just about 2 million downloads of different shows on this mm -hmm. or different episodes on this show um, in the time that we've been doing it as well. So that's a pretty good reach, I think. I think we've we've taken the message to quite a few people uh, and, and we've expanded a lot of people's horizons and what might be possible with the iPad. Yeah. And of course, it's been a pleasure working with you, Fraser, but you already know this. Um, and you too. Yeah. Thank you. So... We've been doing this series to finalize Canvas uh, on the future of iPad. And today, for the final episode, we're going to do future of iPad, the ecosystem, which is this uh, sort of all-encompassing idea of where the iPad ecosystem as a whole is going. And uh, we wanted to start with the hardware ecosystem. Uh, and I guess the major change that is going to have some consequences, I hope positive ones, in the future is the adoption of USB-C. Um, since its introduction uh, in 2010, the iPad has used first the 30-pin dock connector and then Lightning, but um, it used a proprietary Apple connector. With USB-C, Apple is opening the iPad, the iPad Pro for now, and eventually, I guess, every iPad, um, to this whole ecosystem of third-party accessories, um, devices, and external storage options that people can use with Windows PCs, with Android devices. It becomes more of a universal type of input. Um, Going forward, I think one of the... We, we discussed this in, in the hardware show, and we mentioned this in the software episode, and I want to reiterate how I believe that the first two major changes related to USB-C that I feel will be coming true in iOS 13 and maybe 14, so we're talking 2019 and 2020, 
are the a proper external display API, so the ability for developers to uh, to make apps that work on multiple displays. But as you mentioned, Fraser, that will require the iPad to gain some kind of knowledge of uh, a, a pointing device. Because if you're working with an external display and you need to control a separate window of an app on an external display, you will need to have some kind of trackpad. Yeah, that's a hard boundary that is going to have to be crossed because uh, you mentioned the, the show where we talked about the Chromebook Tab 10 and, and the Chromebook Tab 10 has exactly that problem, which is that um, it it has the capability to have a mouse and keyboard attached to it and it can also connect to external display with a spanning uh, a spanning desktop. And if, if you were to take, uh, drag a window onto the external screen and then disconnect the mouse and keyboard, uh, you can't get that window back. So there, there's some kind of weird um, alleys you can go down if, if you don't have proper support for both. Um, and I think that's going to be an interesting challenge because the, the experience I had with the Chromebook Tab 10 was that um, sometimes you want to use it as a tablet, but the software didn't always fully adapt to now I'm a tablet, now I'm a, a display. And, and I think it's going to be it's weird if you have that, you know, you're connected to a non-touchscreen display and you don't have a keyboard and mouse attached, do you still get that capability or does that capability go away? Um, are, are we going to have to have some kind of integrated virtual pointing device so that that's all, at all times a usable situation? That's going to be an interesting one for them to get right. Yeah, and I, I personally believe it's going to happen. I think we'll, we'll get the external uh, pointing device. Maybe initially it'll be like an accessibility API or something, like an accessibility mm-hmm. feature. I can see that you know, Apple making the argument that for um, accessibility reasons, now it's possible to use a, a cursor um, on iOS. But eventually I believe it'll open up um, the ability for Apple to say, well, now you can connect uh, an external display to the iPad, which you can already do, but you will actually be able to have like a secondary workspace, not just uh, mirroring. Um, the second uh, USB-C feature that I think will become sooner rather than later is integration with external storage. So I believe that in the Files app, you will be able to see USB drives connected via USB-C to the iPad. Um, I think, honestly, this should have been available with the new iPad Pro at launch, Um it would have sent a strong message uh, about we're now embracing USB-C and yes, you can connect uh, an external drive and browse your files and import them on your iPad or you can move files and documents from apps onto an external storage device. Um, I guess it'll be interesting to see what Apple does in regards to, um, first of all, how apps will be able to deal with external storage, uh, will it mm-hmm. show up in any like specific mode or specific UI um, in 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 a third-party app? Will it just be another location in files? What's going to happen, uh, for example, uh, with uh, the format of the drive? Will you have anything like disk utility on iOS? That seems wild to imagine, but uh, you know, with USB-C, why not? Why shouldn't you be able to mm-hmm. manage mm-hmm. an external drive on an iPad? And also. What if, with an external drive, Apple could open up something that people have been asking, uh, you know, people send me questions about this all the time. 
why is it not possible if you use an iPad to use a third-party backup solution? Why is the is iCloud uh, iCloud backup the only backup system for an iPad? And I think you can make a solid a solid argument in favor of something like Backblaze, uh, or rather something like SuperDuper, for example, or uh, what's it called, Carbon Copy Cloner. Um, yes. You know, these local backup solutions for macOS. Mm-hmm. I could see an argument being made that given all the necessary permission prompts and authorizations, you could run a backup software on an external drive on your iPad without having to use an internet connection. Yeah, I mean, I mean, on the face of it, the the obvious reason not to do that is privacy, right? That you you would you would have yeah. to privilege a certain set of applications to go across all the sandboxes. But you know, in principle, it may be possible to say, like, okay, we're going to do a backup. We're going to encrypt all the sandboxes and we're going to back them up. And and then the backup service doesn't necessarily see anything but an encrypted sandbox, or yeah. maybe the iPad can create a, a an encrypted image of itself or something like that. But I've always found with, you know, we do this in school quite a lot when kids break their iPad or the iPad goes bad for some reason. Um, backing up and restoring an iPad has always been a pain, oh except, through, uh, except through iCloud and consumer, you know, permissions and so on. But we use supervision on our iPads and we use MDM enrollment. And almost like every point version of iOS, the procedure for backing up and restoring an iPad changes and it's never documented. And this is one of the things that I sort of profoundly resent is that, um, you know, kids break their iPads so re- relatively infrequently that I have to sort of derive it from first principles every time somebody does it to see what it is this time that I've got to do to get it right. And, and in some ways it's gotten harder over time as well. So I think um, even with Apple's tools, <laughs> backing up and restoring an iPad is hard enough. So um, it, it would be lovely though, if you could have something like, you know, Imagine a sort of very smart hard drive with a USB-C connection that you just plug it into the iPad and you just go, dump everything on this iPad onto this hard drive. And then you could, you know, restore from a hard drive somewhere else. And, you know, for me in school, where otherwise I'm going across the cloud, that would be way easier. And I mean, in principle, you can sort of do that with Apple Configurator as well. But um, there are complications to that as well. And there are things like backing up and restoring to the same hardware behaves differently from backing up and restoring to different hardware. And um, I still feel that iOS backup was kind of a mess. And it's it's more just disaster recovery than actual backup as such. And I think there's there's much, much more that could be done with that. And part of it is is you know, fast connections to local storage. And part of it is, you know, much better systems for choosing parts to back up and rather than just, you know, back up this whole box to this whole other box or to the cloud. And I think there's there's lots of things that could happen there. And I think it's, uh, there's a lot of scope for, for improvement all the way through that. So yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll see what comes out of that. Um, yeah. So moving on to um, something that is not USB-C or Lightning anymore, <laughs> the new Apple Pencil. Yeah. Um, so the the second generation one just came out with the new iPad Pro um, mm-hmm. in November, um, and it supports support for gestures, which means you can uh, right now the only gesture that you can do on the pencil is double tapping to access either an eraser or the last use control or a customizable feature enabled by third party apps. Um, I think that two things may happen here. So when a third iteration of the Apple Pencil comes out um, sometime, I don't know, in 2022 or something, um, either more gestures or buttons. 
So there's still quite mm-hmm. a few people that I see on Twitter saying that it would have been preferable to have a pencil with physical buttons that you can click. This is kind of how uh, Wacom tablets and their uh, their pens work. They have physical controls to access uh, specific functions when when in in using the the stylus with the the, the pen with an app. Um, but I could see. In the meantime, Apple enabling more gestures via software. Uh, I mm-hmm. remember in September or maybe October, there was a rumor on uh, on 9to5Mac report that um, they found some strings in the iOS firmware pointing at uh, multiple gestures um, supported by the Apple Pencil. Stuff like uh, mm-hmm. long tap or tap and slide, stuff like that. So... Maybe Apple realized that those gestures were too fiddly, and that wouldn't surprise me because people have, some people have been complaining about the double tap gesture as well. But maybe if if they can work it out, if they can um, you know increase the accuracy of those gestures just via software without having to do an hardware revision, I think it would be cool to have more options than just the double tap. Yeah, and I was kind of surprised with the new, the current iteration of the Apple Pencil that it didn't do anything with the other end because, you know, in the first generation, obviously that was the charging end, so you couldn't really do anything there. But, uh, you know, the the second generation Apple Pencil just got a closed end and it doesn't do anything. And I wondered, maybe we might have seen a, a sort of eraser type action or something if you just flip the pen around. Uh, but we haven't seen that so far. So that's, you know, it's clearly possible now because there's no there's no active part of the, of the rear end of the pencil. But uh, I think handling that kind of thing is a little bit tricky because you have to make sure you don't end up making it like trying to eat with chopsticks where you're sort of trying to balance this thing in your hand as well as operate it with your hand and it's not to say that you can't learn those gestures because many people do with other tablets but um for a kind of mass market product you don't want to make it too tricky just to get the basics done as well yeah um in the third party uh accessory scene um there's a big question mark right now is what's going to happen to the new smart connector. So the smart connector on the original iPad Pro was never really a success in terms of third-party adoption. I think uh, what we saw with the old smart connector was a couple of Logitech keyboards and one Logitech stand that charged the iPad very slowly because the smart connector does not transfer a lot of transfer a lot of power back to the iPad. Um, with the new one, uh, relocated uh, smart connector in the new iPad Pro, so far we have no third-party options, not even from Logitech. So no idea what's going to happen here. Uh, no idea if Apple is going to do more accessories, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But aside from the smart connector, which I don't know, I don't even know what to believe at this point. I just think Apple uses the smart connector for the smart keyboard and that's it. Um, what I'm excited about is the new bridge keyboard launching. Sorry. <clears throat> what I'm excited about is the new bridge keyboard launching in spring 2019. I just saw, um, I got an email from Bridge. Uh, and it's, you know, if you know bridge keyboards, they sort of turn your iPad into a macbook type device there are aluminum keyboards the bluetooth keyboards they are backlit they have media keys they have special ios function keys like siri for example um, and the new one will work with the 11 inch and 12.9 inch 2018 ipad pros but in addition to what it already does so an adjustable hinge with a you know customizable viewing angle it'll also have a usb-c port 
So I think you will be able to use the keyboard in wired mode in theory, but also it will support folding back so you can fold the keyboard under the, the iPad if you just want to use the iPad as a, as a touch display. And it will also have a, uh, like, a, like a folio case to protect the back of the iPad. Uh, this was a, Bridge has been announcing all the features of this new keyboard in a series of tweets over the past few weeks. So um, I'm guessing that we see ES coming up in January, that Bridge maybe will be showing off this keyboard uh, at the show. And, but it's shipping in early spring 2019. So this is most definitely one of the things I'm going to buy next year. One of the strange corner cases for using wired keyboards with iOS is they're actually available in the United States, but they're typically not available um, worldwide. This is actually also true for Chrome OS as well. There are a number of wired keyboards for both platforms. Um, and the reason for that is that in some states in America, there, there are some regulations around about the kinds of computers that children can take uh, standardized tests with in school. And one of the rules in some states is that you're not allowed to use a wireless keyboard to uh, to do these tests. So if, if you have a, a one-to-one iPad school or district or something like that, I believe there is a requirement that you have some kind of plug-in keyboard in order to do these online tests. Um, so Logitech have in the past had a wired iOS keyboard um, which had a lightning connector on it and or, and they actually had a 30-pin version at one point as well um, which had a sort of standard Apple layout and then it was wired into a lightning cable. That never shipped anywhere apart from the United States and and um, I think it's either Belkin or Logitech have also got one for Chrome OS as well for schools that are going with the Chromebook Tab 10 where it's the same kind of thing. It's a USB-C connection but it's got the Chromebook keyboard layout as well and, and there's a model that's got a stand for the for the Chromebook that goes along with it as well. So that's a kind of strange um, ecosystem corner case that doesn't seem to, um, these companies seem to not bring these products anywhere outside the US because there seems to be no particular demand for them. But I think Federico was going to say one other thing about keyboards, which is that I, I think it's probably time for Apple to sort of rethink all the extra keys on the keyboard for iOS. Um, and and the, I mean, these keyboards are dedicated to iOS and they're essentially giving you a Mac keyboard Um to connect to, you know, designed and built so that it connects to an iOS device. And I think um, you, you mentioned the bridge keyboard with its extra keys and so on. And I think there's there's a strong case for Apple rethinking some of the, the buttons, you know, on, on Chrome OS, for example, they've, they've replaced the caps lock key with a search button. And I have to say in, in the past couple of weeks where I've been using that, this is this has been a phenomenal thing. Imagine uh, instead of caps lock, you basically brought up Spotlight. Um, that's what happens in Chromebooks and, and it is phenomenal because it it combines searching the web, searching your Google Drive, all the files you've recently used, all that kind of stuff, and you can hit that from anywhere and bring up whatever you want and keyboard select it and, and go. So I think there's that would be an interesting step forward be to make the iPad keyboards more iOS-y and, and do some better integration between iOS, the software, and, and the design of those keyboards and some of the extra keys that are available as well. Yeah, I want to see I want to see a pro keyboard made by Apple for the iPad. I mm. want to see. I've been I've been talking about this for for a long time, but I want to see like uh, a, a more full featured smart keyboard. Like, give me even if it's thicker, but give me a keyboard that integrates with the iPad but has more options. Like you say, I don't know if Apple want to make something like the Bridge keyboard. But I'm fine if they want to keep the smart keyboard and make a pro version of it, like with more keys or slightly more travel, whatever they prefer. Um, I would love to see that. Which brings me to this other point, um, 
that I want to discuss briefly in the hardware ecosystem section of the show. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, Jason Snell wrote this article, I think it was maybe last year, uh, about the idea of an iOS laptop. So the idea of... Um, because so many people like this form factor of the iPad sort of turned into a laptop through the use of an attached keyboard. Why shouldn't Apple make an actual thing out of this? So a laptop that runs iOS, that has an integrated design that is like an iPad, but in an actual laptop form factor. And I've been thinking about this for a long time, the idea of could Apple make sort of a hybrid iPad? Because they already kind of make one, but you need to attach all these pieces together. What if they actually made an iPad designed to be mostly used in laptop mode. I think that would be interesting, but I uh, I, I want to hear what you think about this. When Jason first came out with that, I, I thought that's, that seemed like an odd thing to propose, but I think what I think has happened over, certainly over the years we've been doing Canvas, and certainly in recent years, I, I feel like almost... Um, laptops have gotten more like tablets faster than tablets have gotten like laptops. So in a way, I mean, you think about how many iPad Pros are sold and how many of those do you think are sold without a keyboard? And I would suspect the attachment rate for keyboards is probably pretty high. And, and a lot of stuff um, that you see done with the iPad Pro in particular, the Pro, um, sort of, I would say it depends on the keyboard because clearly Apple's got a, a very strong sort of boundary where you have to be, the, the iPad has to make sense without the keyboard. So you can perfectly well buy an iPad Pro with no keyboard and use it that way and, and that's fine and, and Apple's very determined to keep that being fine. But I think more and more those iPad Pros are getting bought with keyboards and it's, the keyboard almost comes to be seen as a, a necessary accessory to the iPad. So in a way we already have a kind of iPad laptop, you know, if you look at the way that most iPad Pros are used. And it has some benefits at the moment. It has some drawbacks. And you talked earlier about the possibility of having, uh, you know, pointer support and trackpad and so on. And I think essentially what we've got is we've got an iOS laptop, but because it's made up of an attachment keyboard and all the computer in the screen, you've got a laptop where A, it doesn't have a pointing device and B, it's kind of weighted a little strangely and it doesn't behave the same as, you know, a normally weighted laptop does. And I'm sitting here with, with my Chromebook Pixel um, in front of me. So I keep calling it that. It's called a Pixelbook because <laughs> that's the five-year-old name for the thing. But anyway, it's a, it's a two-in-one Chromebook, right? And I, I find it very interesting to use that because the, the Pixelbook is the exact same size and weight as the 12.9-inch uh, iPad Pro, the new generation, with the keyboard attachment. So what I have, kind of, my wife has got that, and I've got this Chromebook, and I'm kind of looking at two alternative evolutionary features, you know, and we've got the iPad over here, which is a unitary computer with an accessory attachment keyboard, and I've got this computer here, which, you know, when I go to school and I do my work, it behaves like a laptop. I open it up on my desk and it's got the keyboard at the bottom, it's got the screen at the front, but then you can fold it back, you know, so you turn the keyboard underneath and the keys face down onto the table and it stands up in a sort of easel fashion and you can watch a movie on it or, you know, sit and casually browse the web on the sofa with it that way. Um, and what I like about that form factor is that it's always balanced and weighted very well. It, it's never wobbly and you can see this even and this is not a sort of ios chrome 
argument because the Google Chromebook Slate, their iPad Pro competitor, has exactly the same weighting problems as the iPad Pro, and then it's a tablet with a attachment keyboard. So I think the fact that Apple's never done a two-in-one or a, a folding back laptop in, in either macOS or iOS, I think that's a missed opportunity. And, you know, Apple executives have scoffed at the idea of touchscreen laptops and, you know, people have poo-pooed two-in-ones as being, you know, people just looking for a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. But what I find about the, the Pixel Book as opposed to the iPad Pro is that it's, in a way, it's almost more versatile because it can become more things. It's like a kind of transformer computer. It's kind of weird to have, but um, I found it very enjoyable to use, um, which is not to say the iPad is not enjoyable, but I think it it behaves more like a laptop in the times where you want a laptop, and it behaves more like it's more like a tablet in the times you want it to be a tablet. And it's you can even fold it right back and use it as a tablet if you want. Um, so I think there's a stronger case than ever for Apple to try it somewhere with something and and see what the effect would be. Now, the, the, the criticism of the Chromebook when you have it in tablet mode is that the Chrome OS does virtually nothing to turn itself into a touch-based operating system. Um, and I, I run mine with a slightly um, uh, reduced size display so things are smaller on screen. And some of the touch targets are, honestly, I'll say it, hard to touch. Um, it's hard to close a tab. It's hard to hit that button, for example. Um, but for the kind of casual, you know, scrolling a web page, playing a Netflix video, the sort of evening stuff, if you like, and I find myself only using it in tablet mode in the evenings when I'm relaxing as opposed to during the day when I'm working. It's it's interesting to have one device that um, fluidly adapts to those different situations. So I'm, I'm kind of more in favor of that than I've ever been. I think Apple should definitely not stay close to that idea forever because it has a lot of benefits. Yeah, uh, that's exactly what I want, like hearing you talk about this. I want I want that kind of device, but that runs iOS. Um, and the idea of an iPad that is able to adjust, like if you remove it from the, from, from the keyboard or the case, whatever it is, it's mostly a touch device. But when it's attached, uh, it's also a touch device, but it works better with the trackpad or with the keyboard. Uh, and I can tell you that the idea of... Uh, oh, you wouldn't want to touch uh, a laptop or like a desktop OS. I don't, I don't. I'm not sure if I fully buy into that. Sure, I don't think that controlling macOS, for example, via touch, uh, exclusively via touch, would be a good idea. But sometimes, even though my hand is on the trackpad, I try to reach out and tap like on a text field or on, on an icon in the dock. And I think it's fine. I think it will be totally fine if you want to just... Uh, sometimes if you want to you touch things on a, on a laptop device or a desktop computer. Um, and I think Microsoft is onto something here with the way that the Surface works, for example, that it supports both. And I would like to see that kind of, that kind of future in the iPad. Like, I would... I would be all over uh, an iPad that has a keyboard that features a trackpad and sort of adjusts the UI of iOS ever slightly so that it makes more sense to be used primarily from a keyboard, but that is also a touch device. And at any point, you can just detach the, the iPad and use it as a tablet as like you would normally would. So Yeah, there, there's a Chromebook that does that called the HP X2, which has, it has a kind of heavy base like a laptop but you can pull the screen off it's like a detachable form factor and you've got a, a, a chrome os tablet in your hand once you take it off um but i i think one of the things about it is that you have 
instead of having to sort of disassemble and reassemble your computer, just being able to, you know, sometimes I've had it where I've been sitting on the sofa, an email has come in, I'm like, oh, I better deal with that email. I'll just sort of flip the keyboard out, bend the whole thing back the other way, do my email and then bend it back and I'm done, you know, and having it all in one piece and, and the weighting of it, I think is interesting too. So there's there's lots to think about there and, and clearly even Google are trying both things as well with, with the Chromebook slate and, and the... Uh, and the Pixelbook as well. So we'll see. It would be a big step for Apple, I think, because they've kind of set their stall against doing that. You know, they've they, they've almost openly mocked it in the past or, or certainly spoken against it at an executive level that nobody wants to touch a computer screen. But I, I'm not at all sure that's true. I think what you've said, and, and I think people who have grown up on iOS and then maybe got a laptop, they sort of expect every screen to be touch. You know, and the fact that um, Apple's screens are the ones that are not touch makes it, makes it seem a bit strange. Yeah, so I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see what happens there. Yeah. But uh, I don't know if we're gonna see any changes here in 2019. But maybe I think maybe, that's a while away. Yeah, maybe yeah. maybe in a couple of years we'll see. All right, so we have a lot more to talk about. But before we move on to the next topic, uh, Fraser, why don't we thank our friends at Pingdom? Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Pingdom, the company who make website performance monitoring really easy. Everyone loves a fast website and Pingdom are helping you keep your favorite sites online. Sites like Netflix, Amazon, Spotify, Twitter, BuzzFeed, Slack. These are just a few of the companies who trust Pingdom to take care of their website monitoring. Because websites can get pretty complicated, but you can monitor any site transaction with Pingdom. Stuff like registrations, logins, checkouts, and much more. Because Pingdom care about your users having the smoothest site experience possible. And if disaster strikes, you'll be the first to know. Super easy to get started. All Pingdom needs is your URL and they'll take care of the rest. That is it. So go to pingdom.com slash reallyfm right now for a 14-day free trial with no credit card required. And then when you sign up, use the code CANVAS at checkout to get a huge 30% off your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom for their support of this show and Really FM. So what is this idea that you put in the notes here of the OS ecosystem? Yeah, so... I think what I'm sort of referring to here or, or wondering about discussing is the possibility, like, is there actually an, a halo effect in having all Apple products, right? So the, the idea that you, you have, a, you've got a Mac, and this is what Apple executives always say you should have as a Mac and an iPad and a phone and an Apple Watch and an Apple TV and a HomePod and all of these things. What do we get that's more than the sum of just having all those separate things? if you have uh, an all Apple world, is, is there actually, you know, a, a, is there a, an ecosystem above the devices themselves? Because we're looking, you, we just talked about iPad as a device and then all the things that kind of live below on the family tree from the iPad itself. But is, is there actually a, a, a part above that where you get a great benefit if you have all these devices together? And I think in, in some cases, there are things that work together, you know, so if you have, uh, an Apple Watch, you can unlock your Mac using your Apple Watch, but strangely not your iOS device. And um, you have apps that you've bought on your iOS device, and some of them you can put on your Apple TV, for example, and, and maybe that's not as valuable. Um, and then there are some things that sort of don't really work very well at all, like AirPlay mirroring, which has never been all that good, um, where you, you share your iPad screen to a, a TV or something like that. You know, do you feel there is a there is a larger payoff to having all these all apple things 
Yeah, I think there is. This is one of the the things that I really like about like um, sort of being all in on Apple services and devices. Like, and it's the smaller things. Like, for example, um, if you if you use uh, you know, for example, uh, the audio apps on the Apple Watch, like uh, Apple Music and podcasts, uh, in the workout app, you can swipe uh, to the side and you get like this embedded now playing view. So that while you're working out, you can pause a podcast and it's right there in the Apple Workout app. So you can you can use a third-party workout apps, but it works better uh, if you use the official one because not only you get to have like real-time statistics, but also it integrates with any audio source playing on your iPhone. So that's a second device. Um, but also like... For example, if you use um, reminders, for example, you get the ability to, like, it's a framework, so you get to, like, uh, use third-party apps that can all integrate with the, with reminders instead of having, like, proprietary um, database systems and stuff like that. And I think the idea of, like, I have an Apple TV, for example, I can wake the Apple TV and control the UI from an iPhone, from Control Center, or from an iPad. So I think the more, and not to mention, for example, HomeKit, so all these devices that like all communicate with each other, and I have a smart home, and so my iPad can change the color of the lights, but also I can do the same from my Apple Watch. And I think the more, like, there's something that I keep going back to, the idea of comfort, like the comfort of the Apple ecosystem, uh, the fact that once you buy into all these things, it's very nice how everything works together and you don't have to necessarily set up everything from scratch with like uh, a web account or like a login for something else or there's this weird limitation. Like for example, when I because I use reminders, I can save tasks uh, via my HomePods and I don't have to specify like a custom syntax like to say in OmniFocus or in, in things like all these extra commands I don't have to say those because it's integrated with the HomePod so I feel like the idea of the different OS's that they work with each other uh, I think the Apple Watch unlocking the Mac is a great example. Like that is the perfect example of, of what what you're referring to here. And I want to see stuff like this, like this this device to device integrations, sort of become more and more pronounced. Another example could be. In Mojave, there's a continuity camera, so that you can use the iPhone as a camera with your Mac. So like apps like Agenda, for example, if you want to attach a photo to a note in Agenda, you can just say, open the camera on my phone, and so you can use the iPhone as a scanner or as a camera, and the document will be right there in the note on your Mac. So uh, Mac apps can use the iPhone as a remote camera, which is super cool. And I guess like the Apple Watch can be used as a remote for the camera of the iPhone. So you can tap the shutter, the shutter button on your watch. So stuff like this. Um, I want to see come to the iPad also. Like, I want to have the continuity camera on the iPad as well, and I want to get the ability to unlock the iPad with my Apple Watch. Why just my Mac? Uh, because if I if I tap the screen, it should unlock uh, because my Apple Watch is nearby. Uh, I know that there's Face ID, and Face ID is super convenient, but I I want to get like the same. It's super easy. Like when I walk into the bedroom where my Mac Mini is, I just need to tap on the spacebar of the Magic Keyboard. And I feel like this subtle tap on my wrist uh, because the Apple Watch has unlocked the Mac. And I want to get that that on the iPad as well. 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's there's many things that are of great benefit, you know, and I didn't put this in to sort of argue that such a thing didn't exist, but I think it's it's been there in, in fits and starts, and I think that some of it is beautiful integration, like you say, the Apple Watch, and some of it is um, okay and, uh, and could be a little bit better, but I think um, there's also the content part to that as well, you know, so if you have... Uh, I mean, Apple Music is what it is, and Spotify is well supported on a lot of platforms as well. But um, you know, there's still the whole thing about uh, you know movies from iTunes and things like that, which you know, having moved in part away from the Apple ecosystem, I'm sort of looking at some of that stuff that I've still got in iTunes, and I'm going, hmm, how do I get that on my Chromebook? You know, <laughs> and, um, I think I'm going to have a, a little job cut out for me during the whole Christmas holidays to try and figure out um, hmm. how one might. Uh, how can I say freight that across onto another system? Um, so there's all of that kind of stuff as well. And I think, um, you know, certainly there are other platforms that have good uh, content libraries as well, but I think it's, you're also kind of connected into that based on what you've already done as well. So, you know, lock-in is a phrase that's used sometimes. I don't, I, I don't mean that, that in a pejorative sense, it's just the reality that, um, you bought a lot of content on these platforms and you still need some way to play them back. So my Apple TV is still my way into a lot of that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of the third-party software ecosystem, so apps, mm. um, I feel like there, there's a bunch of big features that, that I feel like are coming next year, maybe beyond. Um, for example, I think it's pretty much a given at this point that in iOS 13, there will be, once again, a focus on productivity and iPad, and we will get stuff like multiple tabs per app, sort of like Safari can already do, with multiple mm -hmm. split views inside the same application. Um, yep. Maybe an external display API, maybe uh, Shortcuts 2.0 with, I don't know, some kind of framework for developers to actually write um, actions that do not use URL schemes. So like native automation layer that is sort of like the modern mm -hmm. take on Apple Script, essentially, and a way for apps yep. to exchange the uh, data with each other without you having to write these uh, URLs by, by hand yourself, which is super ugly workaround anyway. Um, yeah. But also the idea of um, what is Apple going to do with the, with, with, the, with the home screen on iPad? Uh, will developers be able to offer more than icons? Um, will they do widgets, for example, on the home screen? Will they do some kind of uh, new type of shortcut that represents like an action that you can take um, with an, a third-party app on the home screen? That could be possible. Um, but I feel like from the business point of view of, of uh, making apps for iOS, um, there's one big change, in my opinion, and that is uh, the shift to a subscription-based model. Um, this yep. has been going on for the past two years. Uh, recurring subscriptions for all apps were announced just before WWDC 2016, but I feel like we're, we're just now, two years, two years later, sort of reaching the point where more and more developers are realizing I probably should consider a subscription model, especially the types of apps that we tend to cover here on Canvas that I cover on Mac Stories. Mm -hmm. uh, those types of kind of indie products made by small to medium teams. And they're now facing the question of, while well, we're now working on a major new version of the app, do, are we sure that we want to continue selling the app with a paid upfront business model? Or maybe should we consider adopting, adopting a subscription? And I think we're, we've seen in the past year more apps like Ulysses and Carrot Weather and now even Launch Center Pro. All these apps switching or at least 
offering multiple options, including a subscription, I think that's pretty much a sign of where things are going. And I think we're going to see more and more subscriptions and more, uh, even smaller apps use them. You have even apps that you wouldn't expect to have a subscription. Yeah, yeah. And you see even Omni, who have for a long time resisted yep. going subscription-based, they have, they've at least got it in parallel with a purchase-based option. But um, that that's clearly coming for them as well. And I think it's, for me, I think this is the right thing to do. And I think it's the right thing to do because there's no... There's nothing good about the upgrade model except for the possibility that you maybe don't have to pay to upgrade because the upgrade model very much comes from a time when you, when you, you shipped software on a CD and people went to the store and bought a box and you had to keep back features in order to make people go and buy another, you know, Photoshop at £600 or whatever. And, and what, what I think we're starting to see a move to, and I think this is somewhere that Apple needs to themselves sort of catch up to a little bit with iOS in, in itself, is the idea that features just roll out when they're ready. You know, and that's been something that's been quite interesting for me, having moved over to uh, to Android and Chrome OS. That we, you know, development happens continuously, and obviously it happens continuously at Apple as well. But Apple still, at least for their operating systems, keeps the features for big marketing pushes in the summer and then shipping in the fall. And, and whereas my experience in Chrome OS has been that you know um, releases come roughly every six weeks, and whatever's ready when that release is ready is what gets shipped out. And I'm, I'm seeing you know parts of the Android system move through, and you know the camera got an update after I got my phone, and so on. Um, and, and I think that's happening quite well for for iOS developers now. You know people aren't necessarily having to keep all their features for a big 2.0 just to get people to pay an upgrade fee. But I think um, you know iOS itself could stand to have a little bit more of that kind of um, feature flexibility over years. And I know we talked about that when we talked about the the, the software side of the the iOS um, future as well. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that works out. But I think it's the right thing for most companies to do because it smooths out the revenue and it reduces the pressure to artificially keep features back yeah, for exactly. marketing push when those features are ready. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So many developers yeah. like. Uh, they they explained their decision to switch to a subscription because uh, they were facing the problem of, well, the feature is ready, but we don't have enough features to justify a major paid upgrade. So I guess we'll just yeah. have to wait until we have enough features. Like that is a, that is a, like it's creating entirely another problem of your customers mm -hmm. are waiting for a feature, but you cannot release it yet because you cannot make money off of it directly. And, uh, and, yep. a, and a subscription uh, changes that. So I guess we'll just have to adapt with the times that we got used to the idea of free apps or free apps that you paid for once. And that is changing mm -hmm. because the more we demand from our devices and from our iPads and therefore from our apps, the more we're going to have to pay for them because these things are not free. <laughs> Yeah, and I think I think what this will also do, Federico, is I think it will reduce the number of apps that people use. Yeah. I, I think, you know, nobody wants to have like 45 concurrent subscriptions running for different little bits of their program, their computing life. But what I hope this will also do, and I think this is a theme of our show and what we both sort of believe about iOS apps, is that 
if if I'm paying for a subscription, right, I want that to be a, a solution to a large chunk of my computing needs, right? So if I'm subscribing to your video editor app, it's got to be really fully featured. If I'm subscribing to your audio production app, it's got to be really fully featured. If I'm subscribing to Office 365, it has to do all the things right. I need from Office. You know, I don't want to have to subscribe to three other apps just to get the stuff that should be in your app. So what I hope will happen, and I think we're maybe starting to see a little bit of this, is that we're using fewer apps maybe, um, but we're getting more out of those apps because there's there's not kind of like, oh, well, there's a feature that we would do, but people might not want to pay for it. So blah, blah, blah. Um, instead, it's just like, you know, we're, we're building out a whole ecosystem here and you subscribe to it and you get all of our best features all the time. And that's worked out really well for Adobe on all the platforms that they're on. And hopefully it'll start to work out well for the for the companies who are really serious about iOS development as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that's going to happen. So uh, two, two major themes, I guess, for 2019 and beyond. More productivity features on iOS, and uh, which will require developers to update their apps again, and a change in business models, uh, which is already happening and I think will continue to happen more and more frequently. All right, so uh, we have, I think, two more segments to go over. But before we mm -hmm. do that, Fraser, let's thank our awesome friends at Luna Display. Absolutely. You know, we've talked about Mac and iPad. So Mac and iPad people listen because there's something missing from that setup. And this is something that could really change the way that you interact with those devices. Something that you will be so excited to hear finally exists. And that thing is Luna Display. The good people at Luna have given us a little taste of the future. The ability to use iPads as a wireless display for your Mac. Yep, that's right. The iPad and the Mac you already own working together to create double size screen. It's insanely useful. And you just connect over Wi-Fi or USB and boom, more screen real estate. Plug in a little piece of hardware into your Mac and you can have multiple screens even when you travel without having to carry around an extra monitor. Because I mean, who wants to do that? So all you gotta do, you get your Mac, you plug in this little, tiny little adapter into your USB-C or your DisplayPort and you're ready to go with your iPad as a secondary display. Federico, I know you have been involved in a very elaborate scheme to, uh, I believe, replace essentially a single cable with an iPad running a, a Luna display in the middle. How's that working out? It totally works. So um, yep. uh, I have been able... So I was in love with the Luna display uh, unit that they very kindly sent me a few months ago, but it was a mini display port one. And it was so good that I just bought for myself personally a USB-C version to use with my new Mac Mini. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun if with the Mac Mini sitting right under my ultra-fine 4K display, instead of connecting the Mac Mini to, this, to the display, I ran Luna on my iPad, and then I ran a USB-C cable from the iPad running macOS via Luna display to the ultra-fine 4K? Wouldn't that be kind of ridiculous? Yes. And it is, especially because the Mac Mini is right there, but it totally works. I can mirror uh, macOS to the iPad via Luna Display, then connect a USB-C cable from the iPad and use awesome. and see macOS on the external display. Uh, I don't usually use the Luna Display like this. I'm using it, for example, right now when I'm doing podcasts because I want a secondary workspace and the iPad is on the side. 
with audio, uh, audio Hijack and Skype and QuickTime, all the apps that I use for audio when podcasting, they're right there on a secondary monitor. And the performance on my uh, home Wi-Fi network is excellent. The, there's essentially no, no lag. Uh, and I mean, especially compared to other solutions that are software-based. Mm. Uh, the Luna Display is in another league completely. And I'm, I'm now using this to... Um, I'm going to give you a tip, Fraser. I created... Okay a shortcut um, um, for my iPhone and my iPad that I run from the widget. That What it does is it just tells my Mac Mini to wake up. But because I'm, okay. it uses the, uh, I think it's called caffeinate uh, command of the terminal. Mm-hmm. When it issues that command, the Mac wakes up, but it tries to log in, right? But because I have the Apple okay. Watch on, it logs in immediately. So mm-hmm. if whenever I want to use macOS on my iPad, because maybe I need to do something like open Safari, which is an actual desktop browser, what I do is I tap on the shortcut, the Mac unlocks, and the Luna Display app is already open. So I can switch to the Luna Display app on the iPad and it connects to the Mac and I can just start using macOS. It's awesome. Uh, I'm going to write a bunch about Luna Display and the all the great uh, workarounds that I've uh, installed on, on my Mac Mini next year, but I just got to say, it's so good. Um, it looks, uh, it's ridiculous how good it is in a good way. Like, it's an amazing product. Awesome. Yeah, and you don't have to take our word for it. iMore have also said that Luna will change your travel workflow TechCrunch described the visual fidelity as frankly stunning, and Apple Insider said that this is the first time a wireless solution has impressed them. So I know you're going to want one of these. You can go right now to lunadisplay.com, that's L-U-N-A display.com, and once you're there, enter the promo code CANVAS at checkout for 10% off. Our thanks to Luna Display for their support of this show and all of Really FM. All right, so the cloud ecosystem, what do you think should happen here? Mm. Well, I think my feeling, and I've mentioned this before, but I think that iCloud has to evolve to the next stage. You know, we've got to the point now where I think that iCloud is is solid and reliable for many hundreds of gigabytes of personal data. You know, I, I myself have about 300 gigabytes of stuff in iCloud Photo Library and iCloud Drive and so on. And that's all worked, as far as I can remember, flawlessly for me for years now. But I think what's going to happen is that iCloud has to move to the next level, which is enabling collaboration at the a level above individual files. Uh, and if Apple's not going to do that, then I think the other thing they might need to do is they need to get together with Google and Microsoft to get those solutions, which are the ones that are being successful in what we may call small and medium enterprises, uh, to get much more integrated into iOS. So there's kind of one or the other there. Either they've got to compete with those cloud-based products or they've got to let them in the door and let them be you know, an important part of iOS. So I think there, there's two sides to that and it depends which one Apple wants to do. But at the moment, they're kind of not doing either. iCloud has stayed very much a, a personal cross-device sync service rather than a cloud service as such. I mean, I know it's in the cloud, but I mean, I'm using cloud to sort of mean a different thing. If you think about G Suite, for example, it's more of a cloud workflow where the workflow happens in the cloud and your device is used to connect to that. Whereas iCloud and iOS is very much, here's this device, uh, I'm working on the device and we'll use the cloud to sync it to my other devices. So it has a slightly different kind of meaning in terms of what you would do with the cloud on on iCloud. Um, So that's kind of how I feel about it. And I would like to see Apple 
either move one way or the other on that, but at the moment they're kind of in this no man's land of not doing either properly. Yeah, and I guess the fact that they, um, you know, Apple v- makes a big deal out of uh, saying we do on-device processing, uh, we we try to mm-hmm. sort of offload um, the machine learning stuff, for example, as much as possible to the device without actually running yep. any of these models in the cloud. Um, I feel like that... While I understand what they're doing this, and you can make the argument, for example, that doing on-device processing is actually faster than doing it in the cloud um, mm-hmm. because it runs on your device, doesn't require internet connection, doesn't require server, and your, you know, the, the, the chips that Apple makes are actually quite powerful. But it does introduce the question of whether is that going to be a problem going forward uh, for cloud services because we're... I mean, Apple itself, on one hand, they are increasingly moving to a service-based company that they they have multiple types of services. But on the other, they are also prioritizing on-device processing. And something that is on-device is inherently uh, against the idea of a service that runs everywhere. So they've sort of managed so far, I think, to, to find that balance. I think it will become trickier uh, going forward to say some stuff is just the service, but other stuff like it's just on your specific device. An example of this uh, for a long time was the fact that each instance of the Photos app needed to run its own indexing. And I think it's it's still true to some extent today that even though you're using iCloud Follow Library, for example, each individual device needs to do its own local indexing for, like, for example, for search. If you want to search for pictures of mountains, like the uh, and horses and all the objects contained in a photo, those bits of metadata cannot be pulled down from the cloud. The device needs to do the processing on its own. And so going forward, you know, next few years, will Apple find a way to um, grow iCloud to sort of become this... Um, richer service that doesn't require an iPhone to do processing for a couple of days? I don't know, because that introduces also a question of is Apple institutionally against the idea of letting the service, so letting the servers uh, that they run do private processing for users, even though it's encrypted? I have no idea how to answer this question because uh, yeah, it's it's re- it really comes down to uh, a policy discussion ultimately. Uh, does Apple want to do processing of, of your photos to understand the contents of those photos, the people in those photos, the places and the objects in the cloud? Google does it. I don't think Apple does at this moment. It, the, Apple still says when you get a new iOS device and you sign in with your iCloud account, l- uh, let the device plugged in overnight and connect it to Wi-Fi for a couple of days for the initial processing and indexing of all uh, information on your device to be complete. So that's a big question for the next few years. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that's going to get resolved until Apple ships a service that is competitive with others, you know, in, in the sense that... Um, you know, Google Cloud, Google Photos will do things for you in the cloud while you sleep, and you wake up to new things in your library. You know, like new and new uh, highlights or, or stylized photos or stuff like that. And and until Apple produces something that does that kind of thing on the device, um, 
as as elegantly as Google does it, I think it's going to be a challenge for people to argue, well, Apple does it all on device and it's every bit as good because that's the other side of it is it's got to be as good and as useful. And I know just from my recent experience of using um, the Google Assistant, for example, the way that it is harvesting genuinely useful information out of my email and surfacing it to me, you know, so I'll pull up Google Assistant and I'll say, oh, by the way, um, you've got these three bills in your email. They're all due within the next week. Would you like to see them? You know, and that's something that Siri is just not pulling out of stuff because you don't have your full email library on any device that you own. Um, whereas some of the stuff that works in Google's cloud, they are looking at your email, yeah. and But they're using it for, for useful purposes as well. So I think this also goes hand in hand with Apple's privacy stance. And Apple has basically... I don't want to say back themselves into a corner, but they've certainly you know, set out a very clear policy that they want to be the privacy company. And, and I think that... Um, you know, in the period where I have transitioned from many Apple products into Google products, a number of people have sort of said to me online, they said, well, oh yeah, that's all fine that you're getting that, but you've got to give Google all your data, you know? And I'm kind of like, well, you know, Google had all my data anyway, right? Because I was using all these Google services when I was on, yeah. I was on iOS. But at the same time, I feel like Apple at the moment are getting a strategy credit, if you like, for, for privacy because it suits them really well for privacy to be, you know, front and centre. And, you know, Tim Cook's working really hard to make everybody very privacy conscious because he's going around going, well, maybe there should be privacy regulation, blah, blah, blah. But I think sometimes people sort of, you know, privacy can be used as a sort of get out of jail free card for Apple service offerings not being as good as other companies and say, well, oh, it doesn't really do the same things that other companies do, but it's because of privacy, you know, and therefore that's the end of the discussion. It's like for health and safety reasons, we are not letting you do whatever you want to do. And Apple sort of for privacy reasons, we're not letting, we're not providing the features that you want. And I think <sighs> we're at a very difficult time to, because we've got to pick apart, we've got to pick apart um, people's view on privacy people's view on tech companies and also mingled into that is people's view on donald trump as president of the united states because there's a kind of line of thought that goes along which is um i really hate donald trump donald trump got elected because of the interference of russian agents through big technology companies therefore i hate facebook and therefore i hate google and therefore i hate amazon probably as well and apple is the only company that didn't contribute to Donald Trump's election, therefore Apple is the shining knight of the whole scene. And that seems like tortured logic, and I think it is tortured logic, but it is a line of thinking that you have to pick apart because some people who are, um, frankly, obsessed with hating Donald Trump, and I'm not making any, you know, supportive claims about Donald Trump, I'm just saying that... Um, there's a political angle to this, which is nothing to do with technology. And in many cases, it's not even anything to do with reality because people say things that simply aren't true. Like, you know, um, Google lets, lets advertisers download your data, right? It's obviously not true, right? You know, there's nowhere you can go onto Google and buy somebody else's contents of their iCloud drive, right? Or their, or their Google drive. Um, but what we mean by privacy and what we mean by tech and what we mean by politics and all of that stuff's getting merged together in a kind of weird way and i think it would be helpful to be very careful about what happens next i'm mm. i'm concerned with i'm concerned with apple pushing too hard on privacy because i worry that they will precipitate regulation that ruins perfectly legitimate cloud services right because there are respons there are responsible cloud providers. You know, it's not the case that everybody who is 
doing a cloud service is harvesting your data for nefarious purposes. It's clearly not the case. Facebook, I'm, there's a fair question mark over Facebook and it'll be interesting to see what happens to them. But I, I do not believe, for example, that Google is letting people download the files that I have in Google Drive and look at them. <laughs> you know, okay, maybe there's a profile of me, but it's highly aggregated. It doesn't, it's not, it's not my files being sent to other companies. So um, I, I think we have to just be careful about where we proceed from here. I think at a global level and GDPR is just the first step in that as well. I think we have to be very careful how we step here. Otherwise, we could ruin a very, very promising and interesting part of computing for everybody. Yeah. Um, I try to, personally, I try to stay away from the politics discussion as much as possible. It's why yeah. I don't report on this stuff on Mac stories, for instance. Uh, I, I do think that people shouldn't make uh, tech purchases based on what they think a company is aligned with uh, politically speaking. Um, because I, I mean, at the end of the day, these are corporations and corporations, the way that I see it, make deals with the government. Ultimately, they always find a solution to advance each other's agenda, uh, the way the way that I see this. So I think saying, oh, Apple is the savior of this and Google is the, I think it's stupid to say that somebody is the enemy. And uh, I think it's, it's, it's totally valid to have a discussion of, I prefer the Apple approach for, for these things and I prefer the Google approach for other things. I do yeah. see some people thinking that it's like Apple doesn't hold any of your data, which is not the case because <laughs> Apple does collect yeah. some of your data. The way that they store the data, I don't know. The, Google does processing in the cloud for more things, for example, but I think it's wrong to assume that uh, Apple does not collect anything on you because they do and you can check this uh, by going to privacy.apple.com and downloading all the things that Apple collects about you. So uh, I, I do see those arguments every once in a while, and I think it's just another form of extremism, um, politically speaking. Like It's not like Apple does not uh, track uh, information that it needs to, um, to, to know about you, to provide you with services. Uh, so saying that, oh, Google and Amazon and Facebook are bad, uh, and I agree you know, especially for Facebook uh, to an extent with those arguments, but saying that these companies collect everything and Apple collects nothing, I think that's that's misguided. Um, yeah, and I think you also have to bear in mind that Apple, what was it Apple did in China? They turned over control of the iCloud cent data centers to a Chinese company. You know, there was something about that as well, wasn't there? So Yeah, the, it, that not, report was uh, basically shut down by everybody because it seems super sketchy. Uh, the only Bloomberg was. Um, oh, I think we're talking about different things. Though you're talking about the the report oh, where yes, there were supposedly the, the, spy chips in yeah. the iCloud servers, but I'm talking about the the data the servers that Chinese Apple customers have their data stored on is not fully under the control of Apple anymore. They had to yeah. turn it over to a Chinese yeah. company um, in order to comply with the Chinese government's requirements. So it's not. It's not like Apple's completely in the clear on that either. You know, I think it's maybe just, it's a little bit US-centric, people's view of that sometimes. Yes, very much so. Uh, this is a problem that I have in my Twitter timeline, for example, that a lot of uh, context, internationally speaking, is lost because much of the narrative yeah. is uh, provided by US-based uh, websites, which is one of the, the issues that I face running a European uh, company. Uh, sort of, uh, you know, it's uh, like people ask me, why don't you report on, what just happened in the US with the with the Congress like because I don't I don't know what the Congress <laughs> is anyway um, yeah. so my, my take on this is that ultimately um, companies corporations and the government 
they always make a deal. Uh, they always find the solution. So I think it's uh, I think it's silly to say, oh, I don't want to buy uh, Apple AirPods because they they are they are not leaning the way that I lean politically speaking. I think it's you shouldn't look into that. But anyway, to each to each their own. Um, we should talk as the last segment here, real quickly, about the the other side of the. Apple ecosystem, the service ecosystem, but not in the sense of services, not about Apple Music and Apple Video, which I think is coming in 2019, uh, and Apple News, whenever it's getting uh, a service component, but Apple stores and the service for the customer. Um, the Genius Bar, the Apple Care. Um, I, I see two trends here, Fraser. Mm-hmm. Apple stores are getting worse the experience inside the Apple Store and Apple Care is getting more expensive. <laughs> this is yeah, what I've noticed. Yeah. Apple Care Plus is very much expensive, uh, but I think we will see, uh, and again, because it, it, it ties into the idea of Apple making money off of uh, recurring purchases, we will start seeing the Apple Care Plus option with theft and loss protection expand internationally over the next few years. Right now, I think it's just in the US for some devices. I think that will become an option elsewhere uh, over the next couple of years. Um, and for the Apple stores, this is just my anecdotal personal experience, but the Genius Bar is not as good as it used to be. Um, I think it's it, this is due to a change in how Apple is accepting walk-ins um, mm-hmm. from people who just show up and say, I have a broken iPhone, can you fix my iPhone? And, and it's mixing those customers that just walk into the store with people who actually made reservations online. So we're now reached the point where making a reservation is actually kind of useless. You can, at least in my local Apple store, but I think this is a change happening elsewhere as, uh, too, you can just walk in and wait in line for 30 minutes, which is great if you're a customer who just happens to walk in. But if you need to if you if you have like if you're busy and you need to plan around visiting the Apple Store, it's sort of a, it's it's a, it makes for a worse experience because even though you made a reservation weeks before, you're not treated treated just like any other customer who just walks into the store five minutes before you. Yeah, I think there's a number of things going on with the the Apple Store, and you've highlighted two of them. I think there's a couple of other ones that are happening as well. One is that. Um, there's much, there seems to be much less discretion on the part of the genius as to how they handle any particular case. Um, and I've had a couple of experiences this year that really annoyed me um, at the store. One was um, we were using my wife's phone around a swimming pool and it got wet and um, it leaked into the case. And Apple, despite having advertised this as being a waterproof phone, refused to initially refused to cover it as you know a, a hardware failure as such. Um, the second thing is that um, the the repair prices are going up as well. You know, so you know, years ago when we started with iPad in school, for example, we were paying, you know, hundred and something pounds for an, uh, an out of warranty repair, and now with with the new um, with the new iPad Pros, we're now looking at six over six hundred pounds for a, a, an out of warranty repair on, on one of those devices. And I'm sort of wondering, you know, are we being punished for not buying Apple Care Plus? You know, I think because th- the the growth in, in the cost of repairing these devices out of warranty has gone up and up and up to the point where you know you're looking at it going, you know, I could repair this iPad Pro or I could buy like 
two new iPads, <laughs> two normal iPads with the cost of the repair. So um, there's a couple of bits to that. And, and I think also in Europe, and I don't know if you've experienced this as well, Federico, but the sort of European consumer law aspect to it, Apple should be doing more on warranty than they are. Um, there is a, a sort of two-year EU law that Apple are supposed to cover, but they pretty much just try and say that anything that happens is damage, and then you have to sort of fight them to to prove that it's not damage. Now, the other thing I had recently was my iPhone 10. One of the pins fell off in the lightning port, which is, a, I've never heard of that before, you know. But um, what the effect of it was that it wasn't charging properly on USB-A, and it would charge on USB-C only, and it wouldn't connect over USB to any computer. And the guy looked at it with a, a little microscope, and he said, oh, yeah, there's one pin is missing from the inside of your lightning port. And that's damage, and you have to pay for it, and it's a full repair. <laughs> so I was like, well, how, how have I damaged the inside of my lightning port? <laughs> All I've done is charge it, you know? And and how is that my fault? And and the genius was like, well, it's classed as damage. And I said, but how, how have, what have I done to damage it? And he's like, well, it, it, that's just classed as damage. And I'm like, well, who, who decides whether it's damage or not? And how is that... How is that exclusively your decision? You know, you got to show me some evidence of that. So we argued about it. In the end, I, you know, um, paid the Apple Care Plus fee and went away with a replacement phone. But, you know, it's that kind of thing that just burns loyalty, you know. And to me, it sort of feels like going to the car dealership now more than going to somewhere that you're going to be taken care of. Is that It's the place where you're going to go and somebody is going to try and screw you and you're going to have to be on your metal to make sure you don't get taken for a complete ride in order to get whatever problem you have fixed. And I just feel like that's not the way it used to be. Like there used to be more... Um, there used to be more discretion and flexibility, and okay, maybe you can't you can't provide that kind of flexibility at the scale that Apple's operating at today. But um, it's you, you would sort of think there could be a little more flexibility considering um, the margins that are going about in these devices, and you know the fact that you can pick up you know a much much cheaper computer from many other manufacturers, and it will have much longer and more comprehensive warranties than Apple products. And you sort of think Apple could be doing more to take care of people here. And, you know, they're asking for a lot of money for these devices. They are well made, no doubt about it. Um, but they're not perfect and things do go wrong that are not the fault of customers. People have just tried to use them as advertised. And I think there's there's a strong case for Apple being a lot more reasonable with some of the things that they ask you for um, at the Genius Bar. And I think that's that's starting to hurt the brand a little bit. Certainly has soured it in my eyes a little bit over the past year. Yeah, it's not the first time, unfortunately, that I'm hearing these stories uh, from, from people. Um, this is why I... Ultimately, I always buy Apple Care soon, either when I'm yeah. buying an Apple device or soon after, because I think you have a 60 or 90 day window to get Apple Care, mm -hmm. uh, just to avoid these types of problems. Because I know that something happens and it's not even my fault, but the the guy, uh, you know, the, the guy at the Apple Store is gonna say, "Oh well, it's it's customer damage. Now you gotta pay up." So. Yeah. Whatever, I just uh, roll the cost of Apple Care into the cost of the device. I know that I gotta pay for it, and it stayed. It saved me uh, serious money a couple of times in the past. Uh, but yeah, I hope. I, ju I just feel yeah. that Apple Care doesn't it doesn't cover enough of the useful life of the device. You know, that even even if you bring if you get Apple Care, and you know, in many cases you probably should. You know, I'm thinking about my wife's iPad Pro, which she's got. 
and she got Apple Care with it, knowing what I knew about the warranty repair cost. I said, "You got to get Apple Care on this device," <laughs> which she did. But when that runs out, you know, we're still going to expect quite a few years out of that device. And you know, after year three, we're going to be sitting there going, "Please, could nothing go wrong with this device?" Because we're looking at six hundred plus pounds to fix it mm-hmm. if anything goes wrong. And that's kind of part of the issue as well, is that there's there's nothing but a swap out, you know, with with these highly integrated devices. And I feel like we could they could stand to do make it a bit more uh, feasible to repair parts of it rather than, than just the whole. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. But uh, overall, I think um, I want to see the Apple Store sort of uh, turning back to its uh, to, to how it used to be a couple of years ago. Like, I understand yeah. the benefit yeah. of opening up more to customers who just want to walk in. And I sort of, I actually like the new designs of the Apple stores, you mm-hmm. know, with the, you know, with the, with those different types of experiences that you get with today at Apple, which sounds really cool. And they started doing these workshops in Rome as well, even though we don't have the new fancy the Apple store design. Uh, so I like that aspect of sort of bringing the community together and teaching people how to do things. But also, I, I, I would like them to be more like I would like the Genius Bar to be a little more precise and less um, confusing. Like walking to the Genius Bar in Rome yeah. now, it's a confusing experience. There's like 50 people waiting inside the Apple Store, and some people made a reservation weeks before. Others just walked in, and it causes frustrations. People are annoyed. They get into arguments with each other. It's not. It's not pretty. Um, but also like these community aspects, I think it's it, I think it's really it's really fun, really good, and I would like to see sort of finding a better balance between those two. Uh, and mm-hmm. you know, Apple has been making changes to the Apple Store experience every year, so I think we'll definitely hear more in 2019. And uh, yeah, I think that pretty much wraps up all that we wanted to cover for for this final episode, Fraser. Yeah, I think I think that is it. You know, I, at the end of the day, Federico, we're we're dealing with a, a a strong and increasingly strong ecosystem, not just for iPad but also for iPhone. Yes. Um, it none of this is going anywhere anytime soon. You know, and I think that, um, you know, people have sort of advocated for the iPad to be split further from the iPhone, but I think actually, um, the iPad in many ways sort of rides on the coattails of the iPhone, and I think to. To separate them too far would be a bit of a mistake because um, you could end up with a situation where the iPad becomes detached and the iPhone continues on its trajectory, whatever that shape, whatever the shape of that is in the future, which is clearly in question, um, at least flatness if not going down. But I think, you know, Apple could could run for 10 years now, even if they never produce another product that anybody yes. likes. You yes. know, <laughs> they've got so much money that uh, anybody who's saying Apple is doomed, and I know I'm taking a step back from some of the Apple world, but I'm not doing that in the sense of saying, well, um, Apple is doomed, this platform's clearly going nowhere. That's not the point I'm trying to make. What I'm just saying is that I want to try a few things that are maybe a bit better aligned with what I want to do and, and what I have to do at school. Um, but clearly the iPad is strong. And I think one of the things that I, we will see in the next couple of years is these subscription payments for apps will be rocket fuel to productivity apps on iOS. And I think that's perhaps the, the brightest light in the iPad firm at the moment is that if serious companies can make um, a serious shift over towards uh, subscription payments on iOS, I think we're going to start to see, you know, a, a blooming of features because there's no longer any reason to hold features back for upgrades. And I think that's going to make a, a huge difference going forward. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I think it's going to be a few 
uh, fun years ahead. And I don't know, maybe at some point, Fraser, you will be back in the iOS ecosystem and on the iPad. Who knows? Things change over maybe time. Maybe will be. Yeah. 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 I mean, we're still going to refresh our iPads next year at school. So we'll definitely be doing a lot so. of that um, in, in the professional world as well. So... This has been Canvas episode 77, the last Canvas, uh, and we've been talking about the future of iPad and its ecosystem, the broader Apple ecosystem, software, hardware, services, and, and third-party applications, and so on. There will be show notes for this episode as well at relay.fm slash canvas slash 77. Uh, you can still find Federico and I on Twitter. Federico is at Vitici. I'm at Fraser Spears. Federico, it's been an absolute pleasure doing this with you. Likewise. Uh, and I'm sure we'll, our paths will cross again online in the future. Yes, it's been a pleasure, Fraser. Thank you so much for the discussions over the past few years. Thank you to our listeners for tuning into Canvas every couple of weeks. Uh, you will find us on Twitter, and I'm sure that we'll talk about the iPad on Twitter and publicly. And we, you have a blog, Fraser. People can find you there. People can find me on Mac Stories. So once again, thank you. It's been a pleasure, and I hope that you enjoyed this final episode of Canvas. <laughs>